and I were talking through this sermon series in one of our impromptu over-the-dining-table planning sessions, I got a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach that he was going to ask me to do one. It was this look in his eye, something. Anyway, as the conversation moved on, I was more than relieved that this did not occur. Dodged a bullet. Glad I misread the signs. I never thought I would be more thankful to not know my husband as well as I thought. <laughs> However, when he came home the next day, as we were talking about dinner or homework or some non-church-related subject, which, now that I think of it, should have been my first tip-off, Seemingly out of nowhere, he said, Oh, by the way, love, want to preach one of the Jonah sermons? The terror struck me deep within. I learned recently how often Jesus answered a question with a question, so I figured I would employ this tactic, <laughs> thinking it would throw Alex off of his game. I mean, it worked for Jesus, right? So I said, do you want me to preach one of the Jonah sermons? Having that never-dying lawyer's brain that he has, and I suspect sensing what I was up to, his retort to me was, do you want to preach? <laughs> then perhaps sensing that I was going to go into a litany of excuses, and knowing my weakness for fringe benefits, he came in heavy with the lofty promises, saying things like, you know, love, all of your travel expenses will be fully covered. <laughs> At the current IRS mileage rate. Wow, bowl a girl over. So I said I would pray about it. For those of you who don't know the Christianese, that means I'm going to say no eventually. <laughs> However, when I did pray about it dutifully, okay, I whined a little bit to the Lord. I said, <sighs> but Lord, you know public speaking, it's, it's not really my thing. Being the almighty creator and sustainer of the universe, I felt like his response to me was, aw, that's cute. <laughs> you know it is my thing. Right, right, got it, got it, cool, 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 cool. So I wanted to flee. But thankfully, before ending up in the belly of a gigantic, nondescript whatevs, unlike Jonah, I took the travel expenses package, drove the whole 100 yards, that's 2.9 cents, by the way, cha-ching, <laughs> mocked down that aisle right there, and ended up in this spot right here. You'd actually be surprised how long the walk down that aisle feels. 
So I guess, not only did God want you to get a sermon on Jonah for these eight weeks, he also thought he'd throw in a real live example. In case you're a visual learner. <laughs> Lucky me. Jonah, obedience, maybe. Grumpy about grace, definitely. So quick recap. Jonah has been called by the Lord to arise. Rise up. Go preach to Nineveh. So he gets up and goes in the opposite direction. He gets into some murky waters and he has a three-night stay at the Belly Inn. He prays. He has a come-to-Jesus moment, literally. And then he decides, you know, I think I will go to Nineveh after all. He does, and after a five-word sermon, unprecedented revival breaks out. Any modern-day speaker or preacher would be over the moon. But not our Jonah. He is less than thrilled, shall we say. But why? Let's look at our passage for today and see. We're in Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Wow. So this is his complaint. This is his big problem with God, that he is too gracious, too kind, and he relents from bringing down the hammer. Look at verse 1. It says that Jonah was displeased exceedingly, and he was angry. In the Hebrew, the words displeased and exceedingly are closely tied. To be displeased is ra'ah. To be bad, evil, afflicted, vexed. Exceedingly is ra, bad, evil, adversity, to cause injury. Verse 1 also tells us that he became angry. That word in the Hebrew is hara, to burn, be kindled with anger, to be wax hot. It's a hot mess of emotion. So there's a word in Merriam-Webster defined like this. To sin, be vexed, cause injury. Any of that sounding familiar? It's offended. It's a good summary word for how Jonah is feeling about now. He is so offended that God has the gall to relent from sending disaster upon the Ninevites that he says in verse 3, he would rather die than go on living in a world where this kind of willy-nilly grace is happening. So what in the world is happening in Jonah's heart? This is a question I often ask Ben or Hannah when they are having a meltdown. And something in my gut tells me there's a bigger issue at hand. What I'm really asking is, What's the root of the problem? What happened to you earlier today that's causing you now to lash out at the people who love you? It's interesting that to be offended also means to cause injury. Because when we're offended, we are hurt. 
for we also tend to, those, to hurt those around us with our pain. The Lord's question to Jonah is very similar. If you've got a Bible, you'll see we're in chapter 4, verse 4, and it says, God asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Now, it's easy to sit here and judge Jonah, to say, we would never do such a thing. But are we sure about that? Has anyone seen the movie The Equalizer with Denzel Washington? <laughs> Confession. Now, Alex and I love these kinds of films. In fact, if I'm giving a truly honest confession, part of me wants to be the equalizer, <laughs> which really is a confession-level matter. <laughs> now, in The Equalizer, Denzel Washington, a.k.a. Robert McCall, has successfully managed to extract himself from the CIA by faking his death, of course. However, under this new identity, he works to right the wrongs done in society to those who are marginalized, unseen, those who fall through the cracks. In this particular scene, as an Uber driver, he takes a young woman to hospital after she has been, in case there are younger ears, very badly treated by some young, high-powered corporate men. So after dropping her off, he returns to the apartment. And these young men are still engaged in less than reputable behavior. McCall asks if they want to know if she got home okay. They reluctantly ask. He says no. He asks if they even knew her name. They did not. He then gives them a chance to do the right thing, which involves, among other things, turning themselves in. And he gives them 30 seconds. After which, he says, he will take matters into his own hands. And we, the audience, are on the edge of our seats. So this is the pattern for the whole movie. 30 seconds to do the right thing, and then 30 seconds to have things equalized. It's kind of like what we're seeing here in the book of Jonah. Repent or face destruction. It's a brilliant mechanism for creating an edge-of-the-seat viewing experience. But let's be honest. Are we rooting for these guys to take the first option? No, of course we're not. We want them to wildly underestimate Robert McCall because in the next 30 seconds, he beats the living daylights out of them. Destruction is their destiny. We love this. We want to see justice on the screen. We want these terrible people to get what is coming to them because we know the terrible things that they have done. So we want to see the situation equalized. And let's be honest. How many of us would go see the version where McCall walks in, gives them 30 seconds, they mostly say sorry, he sends them to a church, <laughs> we see some of them repent, and some of them, well, not so much, or we have no idea. This would be a rubbish movie. <laughs> like the movies where we're left with an unresolved plot at the end. 
where the bad guy wins or the good guy dies. These movies annoy us. We want the bad guy taken out. This is where Jonah is. He wants to make the decisions about who needs to be equalized and who doesn't. And in his mind, the Ninevites deserve justice. They don't deserve a second chance. And if we were watching the whole history of the Ninevites unfold on the screen from Jonah's perspective, we'd probably think the same thing. The Ninevites were terrible people. They were vile, evil, sadistic, which is why their evil had come to the attention of the Lord. But they weren't just vile, evil, and sadistic to a people. They were vile, evil, and sadistic to Jonah's people. So he's personally offended by the horrible things that they have done. And no, he is not happy to see them repent and be forgiven. The problem is, he doesn't get to make that choice. And neither do we. We live in a culture today where forgiveness is a national news item. And being offended seems to have become a new pastime. Not only are we offended, but every day the world is creating new reasons for us to be offended. New vocab to utilize so we can justify our offenses. Every headline, tweet, Facebook post, someone has been offended, whether it's a group or an individual. We are holding on to our offenses like our lives depend on them, wearing them like badges, sharing them for all the world to see so everyone knows that we're offended and maybe winning the unofficial I have been most offended today contest that seems to be endlessly going on. It's exhausting. Now I am not saying that there aren't genuine offenses out there or that being offended is inherently bad. Please don't hear me say that. But for many, it's like offenses have become one of our only identity markers. And if we have Christ in our life, this cannot be how we operate or identify ourselves. As Christians, our identity should be solely in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So if we join ranks with everyone else and our message to the world is one of offense, then we have not fully understood the gospel. And unfortunately, that's our witness. But it doesn't have to be. In 1 Peter 2, now keep in mind, when this was written, it was written to the church, the whole church. So when it says you, it means you. In 1 Peter 2, it says, You, Christ Church, Fox Chapel, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you, all of you out there, out here, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
You have been chosen, and you can choose. Choose to live like the world and be offended every time you turn around. Or choose to live out of our freedom and out of our new life in Christ, to be forgiving. Hand over that throne of judgment to its rightful king. Feel the weight of it lift off of your shoulders. We won't always understand the decisions, but we can understand the decision maker. And we can trust that he will always reach a perfect balance of justice and mercy. Always. But how do we do this? By resisting the urge to look at ourselves, our desires, our hurts, our ways, our thoughts, and instead look at Christ, the finished work of the cross. Because our constant temptation is to look at ourselves. It's the central ideology of our time, and it's only gaining traction. Self-help, inner strength, inner peace, inner healing, self-gratification, self-justification, pull yourself up. I did it. I wouldn't do it that way. I can't imagine a God who would. Fill in the blank. This, to me, was part of Jonah's problem. If you look at both of his prayers, you can see that they are quite self-focused riddled with I statements. Take a peek. They can be found at the start of chapter 2 and then again at the start of this chapter 4. Helpfully, they are right next door to each other in most of our Bibles. In chapter 2, the first prayer is typeset differently, so just by glancing at it, you can see how many I statements there are. And you've already heard a soundbite from chapter 2. I mean from this second, chapter 4. In the prayer from the belly of the fish, chapter 2, he mentions the Lord 15 times and himself 24 times. In the prayer in this passage, he talks about the Lord four times and himself eight times. Now, I am not saying we cannot mention ourselves or our own feelings in our prayers or that there's some mathematical formula for prayer. Again, please don't hear me say that. I'm all about prayer, and any communication with God is prayer. But I think if you read the prayers themselves, paired with those numbers, you'll see what I mean. Jonah's focus was on himself and his feelings, not on his feelings in relation to the truth of who God is and what he is all about. We have got to trust in God's word and in the person of God himself and in his character but if you don't know his word, then you cannot know his character. And if you don't know his character, you can't possibly trust his decisions. So yes, bring your true and honest feelings to God. Prayer is essential to building your relationship with him. But when we bring our feelings to him, make sure you use his truth to interpret our feelings and not the other way around. Today, God is asking some questions of us. Do we do well to be angry, offended? Are we ready to forgive, ready to accept that he alone sits on the judgment seat? When was the last time we said, I forgive you? Not the classic, I'm sorry you feel that way, or the classic in our household, I can only apologize, to which we respond, that's not an apology. But when was the last time we said, 
I forgive you. There are a million sermons about forgiveness. We've all heard them. Actually, we have all heard them in the last six weeks or so. But how many examples have we seen in our life and in our church? Sermons are great, especially the ones given by my husband or Ben, but it's not sermons that hold the power to change the culture around us. We could stand up here and preach all day, but that's not where the miraculous resides. Jonah's sermon was rubbish by all accounts, but even the animals were in sackcloth and ashes, getting in on the fasting and repenting. The real power isn't in the preach, it's in the word of God. It's in the reaction of the people and how we respond to the truth of God's word through the preach. This is why the church is so important. The hard and miraculous work of forgiveness has to start here with us so that when the world looks in, they see something different. There isn't going to be unity in the world because the world, strictly speaking, doesn't have the Holy Spirit. God has given each of us supernatural power so that we can do things like forgive each other. And if the world looks in and sees forgiveness, like they don't see anywhere else, if they see someone in our church offend someone else in the worst way possible, and they see forgiveness and grace and are really, really seriously confounded by it, so much so that maybe they ask the person who's been hurt or offended what are you doing? How can you forgive them like that? And we can say, in some ways, it's not easy. But at the same time, it's very simple. Because this is what God did for me. So there's no way I could withhold forgiveness from my brother or my sister. Then that's going to be our witness. We're supposed to be a city on a hill, right? People who don't have the light of Christ are supposed to be looking on going, hey, how come they get along so well? What is it that makes them so unified? I've seen genuine forgiveness and healing in that group, and I want that. We cannot do this until we lay down our offenses and pick up our crosses and follow Jesus. It doesn't just apply to a few. It applies to you. Not the elite, or the well-versed, or the eloquent, or the brave, which is, I think, why God saw fit to drag my very unwilling, ineloquent, unskilled, incapable, were it not for his power at work in me, little self up here. Because if I can do this, so can any one of you. We are not called to live a life that is safe, easy, a life that we could easily do in our own strength. That would be boring anyway. As the great evangelist Michael Ramsden said, being a Christian has never been a matter of convenience. That is not the gospel that Jesus Christ preached. Christianity has always been remarkably inconvenient. It has never been there simply to affirm who we are. It is way more than that. It is there to expose who we are and then transform who we are through the power of his Holy Spirit as we engage with him, study his word, 
and seek to live out everything that he has placed within us. Like Jonah, we are called to rise up. A Christianity that risks nothing and sacrifices nothing will often see, guess what? Nothing. If you are here today and you are deeply disappointed with your Christian faith, a diagnostic question you need to ask yourself is, to what extent am I committed to it? God has plans for you, and he longs to use you. Will it be easy? No. Will it require everything? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Without a shadow of a doubt. Because he himself is worth it. For anyone here who may feel that they've been offended by God or the church, or that they're on the outside or on the edge or on the edge of the inside, I'd like to say, if I may, you cannot lose what you never had. If you feel as though you've lost your faith, but you cannot recall a time when you personally knew Jesus, when you knew a transformation in your life, when you wanted nothing more than to live for him, if you never knew that, you cannot have lost it. It may be that what you had in the past was an ineffectual understanding of the Christian faith as a philosophy or a morality or a spirituality. You've never understood it through the person of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sin of the world, who doesn't want anyone to perish, but to see all come to repentance, even the Ninevites and the Jonas. If that's you, I would encourage you, look into this and see if it's true. Because if it is, it's worth your time. And it's not only worth dying for, it is everything worth living for. It is a key to life of freedom, now and in eternity. And who knows, maybe in a week or a month, you too will be here in this podium, not grumpy about grace, but being obedient to the call of the Lord, trusting in him and his character, and with an infinitely better travel expenses package than anything the IRS can offer. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are faithful. We thank you that you have given us supernatural power to forgive. We thank you that you have forgiven us. Lord, we just thank you for the gift of the cross. We thank you that your thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts and your ways are so much higher than our ways. Help us just to accept that gift today. In your name we pray. Amen.